Hello and welcome to another episode of That 60s Recording Podcast, the podcast that has conversations inspired by the golden era of recording. I'd like to tell you again about the new venture that I have started with my good friend and electrical engineer and guitarist, Matty Ulla. Um, we started a brand new cable company called Mojo Cables, um, a boutique cable company where all the cables are handmade here in Yorkshire. Uh, we have a limited run of colours. Everything's very simple. We only do instrument cables at the moment. Um, they're hand-soldered, they're silicon-sealed and vacuum-sealed uh, around the silicon. Um, and it's the highest quality Van Damme cable we could find. And we sit in Matty's kitchen and manufacture, if you can call it manufacturing, essentially just build these cables. And we, we love doing it and we're very proud of them. And they're uh, as high quality as we could possibly make them. And uh, we love them. And one of the main reasons that we started this cable company was uh, to combat our own mental health um sort of issues, I guess you could call it. But I mean, everybody struggled with their mental health during lockdown. So we decided that we wanted to do something that was kind of nice together um, and solder some cables. Um, so with that in mind, we are donating a pound from every cable sale to Mind, the charity Mind, who do incredible work with mental health. Um, so you can find out more about Mojo Cables at mojocables.com. Um, you can also buy the cables on there. We're also on Instagram at mojocables. Um, yeah, so thank you for that. Um, okay, so on with the episode. Uh, this week is the second half of my conversation with Joe Cara, who is a mastering engineer um, from Melbourne, Australia. And um, he is just fantastic to speak to. Um, and we really get into some nitty gritty in this second half of the conversation. Um, and as I said last week, the uh, the quality of the conversation, uh, the actual sound quality, not the quality of the conversation itself, um, is quite a lot better on this episode because it's through WhatsApp as opposed to just my phone line. Um, I was very tired. It's Monday or it's Tuesday now. It's Tuesday morning and I've just come back from a, a four or five days away gigging. And um, yeah. I was I'm pretty tired <laughs> which is why I made that error but it is what it is and we're only humans after all anyway stop rambling Joe and get on with the conversation part two of my chat with Joe Cara taking that on then to, to the actual sort of process of signal path do you I know obviously you might not want to to um to give away every minor uh, minuscule detail, but could you run us through <laughs> sort of your do you do you have like a, a standard starting point or a, a few things that you do every time? Um, not really. I, I get asked this a lot because um, uh, yeah, it's um, I, I on purpose put everything to unity gain when I'm listening. Um, so I guess my procedure is my mixes are, are generally digital with mm -hmm. the odd project being analog. So I'll, I'll put it into my um, playback computer. So I have a separate computer that plays back the unmastered audio and that goes down that goes down a separate line into my console. So as I'm just zeroing all of my equipment back to unity gain, I'm just listening to the mixes in with no processing on just on a very clean line, a monitoring line going straight to my signal. 
Um, I, I on purpose don't have any preconceived ideas about signal path. I don't even have a starting chain, to be honest, Joe. Cool. Um, I, I just, you know, will put insert stuff as I need through my console. Um, you know, one day the shadow hills can be at the beginning of my chain. The next day it can be at the end of the chain. It really depends. And, and I, I really think that having a customized approach to each and every job is probably what um, my clients like and how I get the best out of it. You know, I often laugh at these software kind of um, – well, not laugh, but I kind of find it a bit misleading how a lot of these software packages have this pre – they try and peddle this preconceived notion that it's EQ, compressor, and limiter. And all these packages come out with that those kind of three stages in a row and I kind of lead everyone to believe that's what mastering engineers do. They EQ first, they compress second, and they limit. Now, that, that's one – that's certainly one scenario mm-hmm. that's common, but but it's not how, you know, I, I just, you know, once I have everything zero, Joe, on the console, then I'll flip over to my A-line, which is my mastering chain, and I listen to the mixes just going through all of the gear with no processing, but just through the actual, lot, the gain stages, you know yeah. what I mean? Yeah. Um, and, and by the time I do that, something's in my ear and I start working on something, but I don't have a game plan where I say, right, I listen to the bottom end first, then the top end, then I patch this. It's like it's just pretty organic. It's like whatever feels right. Like if I hear something and it's like, wow, this mix is really bright, I, I want to warm it up, I'll just start working on that. And then by the time I finish solving that bit of the puzzle – Something else reveals itself, and I'm like, oh, that's really giving me, you know, the ear. So I'm going to start working on that a bit. And and so I just kind of, I don't know, I just get ideas bouncing, you know, they'll just come to me as, I, as I'm working on it. And I think probably a lot of mastering engineers are like that, where you just hear stuff and you just start working on what's jumping out at you as needing help and then going to the next bit and the next bit and um, – but I certainly, um, yeah, don't like to have any preconceived ideas. Um, sometimes, you know, having a compressor sandwich is, <laughs> um, is awesome. You know, you put the EQ in the middle and then you put a compressor either side. Sometimes that works really good. Um, but sometimes I compress first or, you know, last. It really, um, I'm not trying to be obscure or elusive. It's just... That's my approach. Is just every day start from a clean slate. It's react. And, and it's my job to work it out. Yeah, you're reacting yeah. in the moment to it. You know, it's like you know, sort of like doing anything really. Like when you mix, you know, you're reacting to whatever your ear has. So, which is like you say, it's probably a more a better way of working than um, than going through motions because um, it's not a you know, you're not then you're sort of emotionally reacting to what's what you're hearing in the moment. Yeah. Yeah. Um, do you, I had a, uh, my, my head's gone. I, I had a, as you were talking, I was, I had a question that I was, uh, was intent on asking and it's disappeared from my mind now. <laughs> um, so, uh, what was your journey into mastering? So were you, were you a mix engineer beforehand and then you got into mastering, um, later on or? Um, to, to be honest, it wasn't <laughs> Joe, I, I, um, I started working at in a cassette factory 
oh, in cool. the early 90s. Um, I was studying audio and music at um, university and just got a part-time job um, at, a, at a local audio company. Um, so I was working in a cassette factory doing quality control and helping out and then um, over th- that summer I ended up getting a job um, you know, the next summer, I should say, I started doing cassette mastering. Um, all the while thinking that I was, I was always trying to get a job doing working in the recording studio, because actually, to be honest, I didn't know mastering even existed, Joe. I mean, <laughs> it, it wasn't, it, it wasn't. Of um, you know, like when I was studying in that, we didn't even do one module on it. I, I don't think the awareness in the late 80s or early 90s was really there about it, unless you were really in the know. So, of course, I was studying audio, thinking all the while I'm going to be a recording engineer and mixing engineer. And so when I was given this gig to do cassette mastering, I'm like, oh, yeah, whatever, I'll I'll do this until I get a real kind of gig. Um, And then, then to be honest, cassettes disappeared almost overnight, Joe. It was like I was doing that for a few months, and the winds of change <laughs> came through the industry really quickly. And then I got put into CD mastering um, and it kind of just stuck. I, I just kind of kept at it. Um, I really enjoyed it. I don't know. It kind of appealed to my personality. I, I liked the sense of the, the attention to detail because um, I like to do really detailed work, you know, mm-hmm. in, in mastering. I'm – I, I can get pretty finicky about frequencies and all that kind of stuff, and I, I like to really geek out on that, and I, I love it. So, um, so no, my um, my career in mixing never never kicked off. <laughs> <laughs> it never kicked off, and I just got put into mastering and never left. I, I just enjoyed it, and to this day, enjoy it immensely more than what I did years ago. I, I love the job. I think it's a really nice job. So how did Crystal Mastering start? What was your journey from sort of working for this the company, so the tape company and then CDs? How, when did you start Crystal and, and how did that all come about? Oh, so I was probably with, um, I was mastering with one company for, you know, four or five years, um, still in my early 20s. And um, to be honest, just naivety, mate, just thought that, you know, <laughs> You know, young man syndrome, thinking you can, you're bulletproof and you can do this bigger and better than anyone else. And um, and I was, to be honest, I was using a lot of digital gear okay. in this mastering suite because digital was the new thing. Yes. And the bosses that I worked for spent big, big dollars on digital equipment, um, they even had digital tape machine, the dash machine, so we compiled a digital tape before transferring it to the digital master. Like, and some, and I kept reading these sound on sound magazines, you know, that kept coming to the studio and looking at these. I don't, do you know that magazine? I do. Yeah, it's big in England. Yeah. Yeah, yeah. So I remember looking at those and looking at the big spreads of the big mastering studios in the UK and in America. And seeing these guys surrounded in analog gear, and I'm thinking, man, there's got to be something in this. And I just had this a be in my bonnet that analog would be a better way of doing what I was doing. But my bosses weren't very interested in shifting at that point, mm-hmm. and rightly so. They they had invested a lot of money in that system, but 
I just kept thinking it was a better way to do it. Um, so it was just that. It was just curiosity, and I just wanted to do it, and I was young enough and had the energy to do it. And so I just left one day and thought, no, nah, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to start an all-analog mastering studio in Melbourne because Melbourne, I don't feel at the time, really had a serious analog mastering studio. Most people were still going overseas or um, doing that kind of thing. So I was really intent, and the focus was on not just analog gear but the best. I, I, I wouldn't buy anything unless it was like the best of the best. Yes. It basically, what, what I saw in those magazines, I was always so envious. I would see Manly and GML and all this kind of awesome stuff, and I'd be like, man – I bet that stuff sounds awesome. <laughs> um, so, uh, yeah, so that's what I built the company on, um, just that kind of really high-end gear. And, of course, trying to do really good work at the same time. The gear isn't isn't everything. It, they're really nice tools, um, but yeah. you really do need to have a, um, a real interest and passion for it and make sure you're doing the right thing by the client. But certainly having all of that awesome gear around, um, that, that definitely helped me get to where I had to get, yeah. Do you remember your your first big – what was your first big spend? Oh, yeah, mate, I, I remember it. Um, the, the first bit of analog gear I ever bought was um, a Manly Verimu compressor. Mm, lovely. <laughs> that was, yeah, that was the first big spend. Um, and along with that, um, I bought a, a Summit um, – Pultec clone. Uh, I think Summit Audio is. I'm not sure if that's Amer- if it's a UK brand or an American brand. I don't but, think I know it. I've not can't can't picture it. Yeah. Um, no. Summit Audio makes some amazingly good gear. Um, I think Dave Hill, the guy who did all the cranes, ah. was he worked there first. Okay. Um. Um. So yeah. So. I bought a valve EQ, a valve compressor, and and then kind of the the addiction started from there. <laughs> it's a rabbit hole, isn't it? <laughs> yeah, yeah. Do you have a but, but eventually? Sorry, sorry, go on. I was going to say eventually though you do settle down. Like that whole gear lust thing does come down does calm down after a while because there's a lot of insecurities when you first start and you think if I don't have that bit of gear, I can't. I can't compete with this person or that person. And you start to realize that the gear is good, but you also have to back yourself yes. and what you're doing has to be good as well. And after a while, you settle on a core bit of equipment that does the right thing by you day in and day out. It doesn't mean that you still don't like – I still love gear. Yeah. And I have a very keen interest in gear and I'm, 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 I'm continuously auditioning and checking stuff out but not purchasing all the time, you know, just always interested and just keeping an ear to the ground and what might be different. But I'm pretty happy with the core set of equipment I've got. So, I mean, this might go slightly against what you've just said, but do you have any specific bits of gear that you perhaps couldn't live without is the wrong way of putting it, but something that you really love that is part of, that you, you, you know, you'd rather not ever work without it? Oh, sure, man. Yeah, no, that, that, you always get that kind of stuff. Um, I mean, I have um, an EQ called the Buzz um, Requisite um, um, EQ. Um, 
buzz, oh, the buzz requisite 2.0. It's got a really long name, like the buzz requisite 2.0 resonance mastering equalizer. It's the longest name. In <laughs> I'm just looking it up now. It's a, it's um, I mean, it's a big bit of gear, isn't it? It, it's my the best EQ I've ever used, and I've I've owned a lot of good EQs. I've I've owned Sontech and GML and um, lots of really good bits of gear, but this is by far the best EQ I've ever. It's just so nice. It's it's one of those mastering bits of gear that it's transparent enough, but not to a not to a clinical point. Yeah. It's got good. It's got a good tone to it, but not enough tone that people would go, "Oh gosh, it's so coloured. You can only use it on certain jobs." It's like just enough that it suits any job all the time. It's really, really cool. I like it. Oh, I, I, they're from New Zealand. That'd be why I don't know of them. That's that's really cool. And they've made big a big impact all around the world in in most major mastering studios from. New York to wherever that they're found in most places now. They're, oh, cool. they're very much prized. Um, most people actually retiring their old Sontech EQs because they can't service them. Yeah, are basically replacing them with Buzz EQs now because people are going, oh, these things are are, are the modern the modern Sontech now. Really, um, they're kind of, in my opinion, everything the Sontech should have been. They've got more choices with you know, high pass stuff and they've got um yeah, they just have more bells and uh, more bells and whistles to it and um but yeah, I I probably that would be my favourite bit of gear and one I wouldn't want to part with to be honest. <laughs> um something I noticed uh, reading on uh, the Crystal website is you do some teaching at a university and you mentioned about learning, you know, when you were doing music, studying music, that there was no mention of mastering. And, you know, I, I w did the music college route and there was, I can't, can't remember much about mastering happening at that point either. And I think it's really cool that you're involved in, in changing that. Yeah. So I, I don't do much, I, I don't do, um, you know, like it's not a full-time gig or anything, but I probably do maybe three or four guest lectures a year at the various colleges around Melbourne. Yeah. Um, and, you know, they're just like two-hour talks where I chat with the students about mastering. They can ask me stuff. I can tell them whatever they, they want to know. Um, and, yeah, it's a much more, it's a much more um, comprehensive look at mastering compared to when I was um, – at uni, they really dig deep, and um, I, I do some lecturing at a place called the School of Audio Engineering, and they actually have a mock-up mastering room at the college. Oh wow! Um, yeah, they've got like a GML EQ and all kinds of cool things in there. Um, I think a Manly Backbone mastering console, and yeah, they, they they treat it pretty seriously. Yeah. So the guys are very eager to ask questions and kind of pick my brain, and it's cool, you know. I'd, um, I like answering whatever questions I have. Um, you know, having said that, most people are very focused on plug-in mastering when I do these <laughs> courses. So I think I, it's sometimes a little bit of a letdown because they want to hear about what's my favourite plug-in and I'm like, uh, if I can't plug it into the wall, it's not really my favourite, <laughs> you know. It's, um, yeah. So, I mean, that, so, that kind of leads on to what I was going to ask next. What's your – what are you finding from – sort of younger musicians coming into the industry. I mean, presumably the plug-in thing is is probably a cost thing that, you know, it's they 
you know, the plugins, you, they can get them quite cheaply. And then, you know, as they move through the industry and, and have a bit more money, they'll probably start to, well, you'd hope that they'd start to find the joy in, in sort of analog gear. But yeah. what are you finding their attitudes towards all of this stuff? Are? To be honest, I think it's not only financially, Joe. I, I think it's a cultural thing. I think the young generation just are used to it. Just the way I'm comfortable in analog gear, these guys just, what they can do on a laptop is amazing. They find it like home. And I think they'd, they, a lot of them would feel very uncomfortable using analog gear. Um, uh, having said that, I know a lot of young guys that embrace it, but, you know, it is financially prohibitive. But, yeah, yeah a lot of guys are really comfortable in it. But, um, oh, to be honest, I have a, a lot of very funny moments in my studio um, where I get young guys in that sitting on a session and um, it's foreign to them. I don't think they knew that they were coming to an analog mastering studio. <laughs> They're probably coming to me because um, they've been referred by a friend or an engineer um, and then they come in and I see them sit on the back couch and I'm working away for an hour or so and I, I, I can see the little cogs in their mind spinning around <laughs> thinking, okay, what? they're not quite sure what's happening with all of this equipment. And so finally I, you know, I give them a listen to the track and I say, you know what, I'm going to put this down now. And I'm like, so are you happy? Does everything sound good? And they've, you know, they've A, beat it. I'll often step out of the room and give them my chair and, They'll A B it on my console. There's a big A B switch, and yeah, and then they say, "Yeah, man, love it. This sounds great." And we'll have a chat about it, and 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 I'll say, "So I'm going to put this down now." And um, they kind of look at me at that point, and and they go, "Sorry, what do you mean?" And I'm like, "I'm going to record this now," <laughs> and I I can see that they're struggling with the concept, so I quickly put them out of their misery, and I have to explain that you know this is we're going to capturing this we're making a new audio file you know we're not re we're not doing a render we're not there's no save or undo or and at first they get quite concerned yeah. about it they're like but, but what if we have to come back and i'm like oh don't you like don't you like something and they're like no man we love it and i'm like so what don't what don't you want to do and they're like oh we just didn't think that, you know, you, we were going to do this. So I'm like, man, we have to commit to this master one day or the next, you know what I mean? Yeah. You, you know, this is, we're here to master the album and it, make it sound great. And, you know, we're not here to go back and, like, they've, they're used to that thing of going back and forth with mixing engineers and producers and doing a revision number 38 and all that kind of stuff. <laughs> and so they get to a guy like me who's like, that's it, we're done, next track. And so they kind of internally freak out a little bit, I think. And But then when they see the process and they get into it for a few hours, they really embrace it. And I love seeing that change when they're like, let's print it, Joe. You know, they're talking <laughs> the lingo. They're into it and they, and they get it. They're like, we get this, man. We are committing. We are kind of getting the best out of this and we're calling it a day, you know, and and, that, and all of a sudden the penny drops and they get the process and they understand my workflow and what it means to master an album and bring it all together. Um, and that's really cool. But, you know, it, it, sometimes it takes a little while for them to actually understand it. 
I, I love And that. I take it for granted. I take it for granted because, you know, I'm an old fart and I've done it for so long. <laughs> but then I realize these kids have probably never seen an outboard equalizer or something like that. And it's always hilarious when they point to my shadow hills and go, oh, I've got the plug-in of that, <laughs> and they freak out. And and they almost <laughs> – some people imply that the plug-in come first and then did they make that after the plug-in. It's wow. really funny, you know. <laughs> so, yeah. that's Yeah, that's brilliant. And I think that you're totally right about the um, – I don't know, kind of the anxiety of, of needing – you know, what if we need to revisit this? And I think that's something really important that, I mean, I'm, I hope that sort of younger listeners to this podcast sort of get from that. I mean, I'm, and I include myself in that. I, you know, I love this kind of committing, um, you know, just get the idea down, have enough trust in yourself and enough confidence in yourself yep. to go, that's it. I'm, I'm, th- that's right. And if it's, you know, if something's really far wrong, just, you can do it again. <laughs> you can, you can work out another way. Dude, I was just going to say that because I get that question. They're like, but just say we want to go back. And I, and I say to them all the time, man, if you really don't like it, I don't even want to recall this. I want to start from scratch yes. and rework it again. Now, I very rarely have to do that, very rarely at all. However, you know, that's what I, that's what I would say to someone is that, you know, I'll, I'll rethink it. I'll start from scratch. But to be honest – most revisions and tweaks I have to do are in the box. Yeah. They're so minute and so small that the client doesn't even want me to um, risk um, not being able to get back to where I was going through the analog domain. They're like, you know, so most of the time it's like, oh, man, can we knock, you know, half a dB off top end? Like they're pretty minor. Yeah. So I'm pretty comfortable at being in the box at that stage. But – um. But yeah, yeah, that that's my attitude, Joe. If I, if I stuff this up, I want to do it from scratch again. So I don't care about recall. How um, does thing? So in terms of sort of business wise from Crystal, do you, are you receiving files worldwide now? Is it? It's you know, it can people who are listening to this who want their music mastered get in touch with you and and just send files over to you? Oh man, yeah, for sure, for sure. Um, um. I'm doing stuff all the time. In fact, I think I'm mastering something this week from the UK. Oh, cool. Um, so, yeah, I'm doing some something from China and the UK and from the States this year. So, um, oh, this week, I should say. Um, so th- there's always kind of um, a constant stream of international stuff um, coming through. Even though most of my work is locally from Australia, um, I, I, I do get quite a bit um, coming in from yeah, Europe and America and stuff. So it's quite nice. It's actually, it's quite a buzz to to have that stuff. Yeah, it's a it's a kind of it's cool when you're. Uh, I mean, I'm here in the UK and I, I work with quite a few people over in the US, and I I always find it quite a buzz as well when you're speaking to somebody. You know, there's somebody I work with in Las Vegas and Nashville, and you 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 kind of. You, I love the way that the world works these days. There are positives in <laughs> in the digital realm. <laughs> yeah, yeah, no, for sure, for sure. Um, you know, bands like the Teskey Brothers and King Gizzard um, especially have really um, kind of put the na- my my name out there, you know, which is really nice because um, they, they press a lot of vinyl, um, that they credit you on their vinyl, which is nice. And that's really just like sending out, you know, a thousand um, 
you know, business cards all over the world to yeah. people who see your name. So it's really nice. And I've really gotten, um, uh, I, I guess, a lot of free publicity from those <laughs> uh, successful records, which is really nice, you know. What uh, What's kind of next? Do you have a, a plan of, are you just carrying on? Um, as you are, or have you got, I mean, I noticed you've got guys working at your studio. Do you do any kind of mixing there or, um, what, what's kind of the next thing for you for, for sort of crystal mastering? Um, look, just doing what we're doing, I'm pretty happy. Um, if we can just keep doing what we're doing, there's no real, um, plan to, to do mixing. Even though I have an engineer that works with me, um, who is a mixing engineer. Um, so occasionally what happens is someone will uh, – we do a little bit of um, what would you call it, archival work for okay. people um, or digitising. So they'll come in with an old tape and say, look, this is an old 16 track um, and we will organise to have that digitised for them. Yeah. Um, we, we either have that gear on site or if we don't, I've got contacts right through my local industry very um, healthy, has a very healthy studio scene. So I could literally drive down the road and someone will have a beautiful Studer 24-track, mm. two-inch tape machine. Um, so I organise for that to happen and then we could bring it back to the studio and organise remixing and remastering. Often the the, um, the client will want to do the, the mixing themselves or send that out, but then it will return to me um, for, for the mastering. But sometimes it's... Uh, it's a full service job where we digitize the reel, mix it and master it. But I really don't get involved in the mixing because I'm a big believer in if you specialize in something, then that's what you're going to be great at doing. Yeah. So I, I like to give that to a, a mixing engineer um, because as much as I can mix and I've, you know, dabbled in that and certainly people have been happy with that kind of stuff that I've done. It's just not my thing. Um, my, my thing's mastering. That's what I do every day. So, yeah. um, and, I, and I have a lot of clients who send me work that are fantastic mix engineers. So I will often bounce that work to them and say, hey, man, you should talk to this guy because he's awesome at hip-hop and um, I'd love to master it. So, But, you know, um, yeah, no, there's a few of us at the studio and we all kind of keep quite busy and I'm thankful for that and – um, Melbourne's in lockdown at the moment, so I just can't wait to get back. Oh, I bet. I, uh, I mean, I'm I'm a huge uh, advocate for this sort of um, specialising. Um, given given kind of the, the you know everybody listening to this who's familiar with what I do knows that you know special specialising is what I like. But with that kind of advice in mind, I'm kind of picturing you as a um, you know, in maybe the late nineties or whenever, um, crystal started sort of moving away from doing your digital stuff to, to sort of setting your sights on the analog thing. Mm. If you could give some advice, mm. um, to anybody now, or maybe like your, your younger self back then, I always ask what, what advice would you give to somebody who's, um, you know, in terms of like a career, cause you've, you know, you've spent 30 years building this, um, mm. this great career and you've worked with some amazing artists. What, what, you know, what advice would you uh, would you say is important? Um, first of all, um, being, uh, what did I say? 
giving good customer service is important. Yeah. <laughs> so th- this is a, this is a people industry. Okay, people are making art here. They're making music. They're often at their most vulnerable when they're sharing this kind of stuff with you. So you've got to be pretty good with your people skills. You know. So that's what I would say to most people is that just remember that you're dealing with artists that can be, you know, as I said, pretty vulnerable and you've got to, yeah, um, you've got to be a really good people person, I think. Um, in terms of, you know, that, that, that's a really important thing. Um, also, I probably would tell my younger self not to be so obsessed with gear. <laughs> yes. I know this sounds crazy <laughs> considering the amount of gear I do have, but I would, I would temper that and say that gear is important and what I think I did right was buy only good gear. Yeah. And that's what I would say to most people is don't, don't if you have $5,000, don't buy five $1,000 items if you're going to be serious about it. Buy one kick-ass thing, right? Um, and I believe that's – and I stick to that yeah. even to this day. I don't want rubbish in my studio. I just want good stuff. And the good stuff lasts a long time. Mm-hmm. Um, so it's, it is worthwhile. But I'd also probably say, you know, back yourself. It's not only up to the gear. Don't be that kind of um, obsessed with it, thinking that if I have this bit of gear, I'm going to get this sound and it's going to – you know, you, you, at some point you have to realise that you need to make that gear work. Yeah. And it actually took me a while, to be honest, to realise that people were coming because they liked what I did. <laughs> I know that sounds a bit weird, but I think I, I maybe I pride myself back in the past on having a collection of amazing gear and I thought that's why people – were possibly coming, and um, I actually had a client say to me one day, he was like, oh, I don't even care what, because I was kind of telling him about the new stuff I'd bought, and he's like, you don't have to sell me, Joe. <laughs> <laughs> he's like, you know, I, I'm, I don't I don't even know about gear. He's like, I don't, I don't even know that much about gear. He goes, I, I just like what you do. So, you know, I think people really have to understand that and back themselves on that. Gear is great, but you also need to be good at what you do with it. And that might sound kind of logical, but sometimes when you're buried in business and you're trying to do stuff and make things work, sometimes you lose sight of that and you think of all the external things and you kind of should look closer to home as to why clients like what you do, you know. so I love that. Yeah. I think that's really important. And as a, a more technical um, sort of final question, if – People who are sort of artists who are listening to this who might be preparing mixes and perhaps even hadn't considered, um, you know, the mastering process, how would you, not in terms of, you know, the, the actual mixing, but in terms of preparing a mix for master, what do you think, uh, what needs to be thought about? Yeah. Um, if, if, you, if you know that you're going to a mastering engineer... Um, I, th- I think one of the worst things that you can do is put some mastering effects on there and send it off to the mastering engineer. Um, that's it's it's a big mistake that happens to this day. Um, I mean, it was very prevalent um, maybe ten years ago. People would always give you, you know, stuff because all of these mastering packages were coming out and. You would get everything that was, you know, and it was really challenging. And I often had to send masters back and say, "No, nah, I can't work on this unless you remove all of these plugins." Wow. Because not only are they 
um, hindering what I have to do, they actually don't sound very good, man. <laughs> Just because you're making something louder, it doesn't mean that it's it's better, you know. And I can't tell you how many albums I saved, Joe, by by not doing something, by telling <laughs> someone to, to take this stuff off. And then I'd get the mixes back and I'm like, man, the fee that you're going to pay me has just been earned by me just undoing all of that gunk you put on the stereo master. <laughs> the mixes now sound really good. And that happened to me I, so many times I can't count where the mixes came back so much nicer and then I, I mastered them and the client was amazed at the difference when he heard his own master. So that's what I would say to people. Just mix it, spend all of your energy making a great mix and, and doing a great production, don't worry about rushing a 10-minute mastering job by opening up some some plug-in just, you know, because it's making you feel good because there's an effect that, uh, you know, you're perceiving it's making it better. Like often with a, a limiter or compressor, it automatically is going to make it a little bit louder. Yeah. And, and that appeals to people's instincts straight away. People think, oh, wow, that sounds great. But all of it, all it's done is really limited what I'm going to do. So I've got all this really expensive analog compression. But if something comes to me already a little bit over compressed, doesn't matter what I've got in the rack, I can't use that anymore because I'm not going to compress an already compressed mix just because I've got a Shadow Hills in my rack. All of a sudden, you, you've taken that bit of gear out of the equation and I can't use that for you anymore, you know, because you've already. Um, over-compressed it possibly already. So just focus on the mix, leave the mastering to the mastering engineer. And what I often say is that if you love something that you've done um, with a mastering effect or something, print a second version and just send it to me. And I got that today with the, a job that I was doing. Someone just gave me an example of what they liked and they were mucking around with some mastering stuff. And I heard it and I'm like, oh, yeah, that's cool. Um, I kind of heard what they were doing and where they were going. But um, ultimately, I still had to do what I had to do, and um, hopefully, they love that. But yeah, just you know, I, I would I wouldn't waste time, you know, doing that if you if you if you're going to a mastering engineer. If you're doing a DIY master, that's different. But if you are going to pay good dollars for someone to do it, just know that you're probably going to trip them up by doing a little bit of mastering beforehand, you know, yourself. So just yeah, that's a, that's my biggest tip. I think that's a really good idea, do, printing a second version to, you know, as a reference almost to say, you know, like I've done, yeah. you know, I like this effect. I, I hadn't really thought about that, but I think that's something that um, I know from doing sessions, or you know, drum sessions, that's something I really like is listening to um, the guide, guide drums that they've put on. Um, you know, I want to hear, I want to hear what their ideas were and then I'll do them, I'll interpret them my way, but I want to hear you know, sort of where your head was at when you made this. Yeah, um, and then you yep. can you can sort of put it in your in your style. Yeah. Um. Thanks so much for speaking to me. You're, you've got so much knowledge on this, and um, I I love listening because I don't know I don't know a huge much amount about the mastering process, and I love listening to you speaking about it with so much passion and um, knowledge and energy. It's great. So thank you. <laughs> thanks, mate. Good on you, Joe. <laughs> Cheers, man. Um, yeah, genuinely, I, I really appreciate you taking the time to speak to me. Um, this will go out maybe in six weeks, I think. Awesome, dude. And I'll, I'll no, no, send me a link, and yeah, I'd, I'd love to um, 
hear how I sound. <laughs> <laughs> are you um, are you doing these new uh, Teskey Brothers things that are coming up? Yeah, I've been doing a few little things for them, but yeah, yeah. So um, there's been a yeah, I think a couple of little singles here and there, but um, uh, no, I don't know of any major work in the works yet. But they're probably just um building up to that. Yeah, they, they Liam mentioned these. They're doing some live something live with some strings. I think um maybe in January they they said they might be recording that. But yeah, quite excited about that that prospect. Doing, doing yeah, a live yeah. album's cool. I did um Sam's album recently. Mm-hmm. Um Sam Teske's album that was um really wonderful um and even josh did an album um previous to that um last year so um or was that this year i can't remember this year's a bit of a blur um (laughs) but yeah i've worked with both both um josh and sam on their solo stuff um so i'm looking forward to see what else they um you know have to offer man for sure cool what um i'm i'm just curious before you go I, I don't know much I've been speaking to Liam a lot and it's nice to get a sort of a recommended Australian act that I hadn't heard of um who's who are you working with that I should check out um who am I working with um I, I I've just done something for a band called the babe rainbow okay have you um so the babe rainbow um are a really cool Really cool band. Um, oh yeah, I found them. Uh, I've, um, I've obviously I've been working with uh, King Gizzard, who you said you, you'd heard of. Yeah. Um, I've also done some work with a band called um, uh, Sticky Fingers, who are fantastic. Um, and um, they, they, I, I would I would definitely um, check them out as well. And. Um, an artist called Wilson, who's spelt W-I-L-S-N. Yeah. Okay. And she's just been signed to Ivy League Records, and and I think that's going to be huge. Oh, cool. Like, it's kind of a, a modern a Motown record. It's um, – it's uh, the production values are great, and she is just – the most outstanding singer I've ever heard. Probably one of the in the top three people I've ever heard wow. in, in my 30 years of mastering. I, she just floors me. Um, so, yeah, w- Wilson is, I think, might have international kind of impact. Um, but you know what? I could be completely wrong. <laughs> <laughs> Who knows in this business what's going to take off and what doesn't, you know? Oh, no. Um, it, it's just anyone's. I, I've heard so many great albums mastering that have never seen the light of day so uh, it just i don't know it's it's a bit of a it's a bit of a crapshoot as they say yeah. something works something's don't yeah oh well i'll check her out that if it you mean anything anything remotely motown it i love so that, that sounds right up my street good on you joe perfect right yeah thank you so much for giving me uh so much of your time i loved it thank you all, all the best and take care cool speak soon bye-bye bye mate Okay, there we have it. The final part of my conversation with Joe Cara. I hope you enjoyed that. It's really, I love speaking to different mastering engineers. You know, I really enjoyed speaking with Ben Pike. Obviously, I've spoken with Bob Olson, which is a a completely different uh, take on mastering. And mastering, 
not so much as a dark art, but just as something that, I mean, it's like discussing mixing with somebody, isn't it? You're getting different viewpoints on what's important to them and how they approach it. And everybody's got different approaches. Um, and I love it. I really enjoy it. And it's not something I know um, too much about. You know, we've all we've all sort of, you know, everyone, I do a bit of mixing. I do a bit of produ- producing. Obviously, I can mix drums and that kind of stuff. But when it comes to mastering, it's not something that... Um, I enjoy listening about the process. It's not something I'm particularly interested in doing <laughs> myself, but it's something I'm really fascinated by. Um, and I, uh, I've really enjoyed this conversation and sort of contrasting it with what else I understand about mastering. Um, so yeah, I hope you enjoyed it too. Um, that just leaves me to say, if you'd like to get in touch with me, you can do that. My email address is joe at allyouneedisdrums.com. You can visit my website, allyouneedisdrums.com. And on there, you can uh, see the shop, which has these lovely enamel mugs for sale. Um, thank you to everybody that has bought one already. I really appreciate the support. Um, and that also just leaves me to say a huge thank you to Joe, uh, to Joe Kane. I was just getting on track with what I used to say. So Rory Hancock for editing and uploading this podcast. Joe Kane for the intro and outro music. David Henshaw for the artwork he supplies. You guys have a fantastic week and I will be back next Tuesday. Goodbye.